Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In this episode of Law Talks, Ellie is joined by David Bentley Casey and Mariam Murr. David is a criminal defence specialist whose practice encompasses a wide range of serious and complex crimes. In particular, he specialises in DNA and other forensic evidence. Mariam is a barrister at Dowry Street Chambers and is instructed in cases involving serious crime, conspiracy to supply firearms, politically motivated offending from terrorism to protest, drug supply conspiracies, kidnapping and much more. Listen in to learn about life at the criminal bar. So which route did you both take into becoming a criminal barrister? And was criminal law something that you both aimed for? Um, I took a very traditional route. I did the law degree. I did a master's in human rights law. I did the bar course and I came straight to pupillage. And I did that sort of one year after each. You know, So finished the law degree straight into the master's, finished the master's straight into the bar course and then straight to pupillage. Um, and I was 22 when I started. And uh, in terms of criminal law, I knew that I really wanted to do very heavily advocacy focused work. So I tried my hand at various different bits. I did a bit of immigration, a bit of family. And when I started on my feet and did crime, I realized that this was the one for me. Um, Just everything about it um, fit with my idea of what I wanted to be, what the kind of work that I wanted to do, the kind of people I wanted to represent. Um, And it became quickly clear to me that crime was where I belonged. Yeah, I, I, I'm just saying something fairly similar. I mean, I, I knew from about mid-teens that I really wanted to be a barrister. I'd sort of seen, you know, things on TV. I thought, well, that's really good. You can stand up and you can sort of accuse police officers of lying and they have to call you sir or whatever. It seemed like a really good job. It, 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 appealed, it, it, it appeals in lots of ways because to be a criminal barrister, you need to enjoy performing. But equally, you know, it's not, it's not all about you, although many barristers think it is all about us. But I mean, it, you know, you've got there's something really serious behind it. So you get to use, as Miriam's saying, you, 
get to use your advocacy skills and develop those. And, you know, occasionally you can, you know, make, make a difference. But I mean, you know, in, in my case, yeah, left school, took a year off, went to university, did a law degree, which looking back, probably I wouldn't have done. Um, had I known you didn't have to do a law degree um, and you could do a year's conversion course, I think I'd probably have done something. I didn't find studying law particularly interesting. I enjoyed the criminal law and a couple of the other things, but we had to do things like land law and Roman law, which was dreadful. Um, so, you know, it, I, I think, you know, in a way I would say to people, if I know it's a big expense to do an extra year now, and that's a big factor. Um, but if you're not, you know, do, do something that you're really interested in, study and then, then then do your conversion course but yeah other, others will take a different view yeah thank you very much so that's kind of yeah moved to sort of the traditional route in but obviously there are kind of a whole range um and looking at your both sort of profiles you've both covered a vast range of criminal law cases so it might be a bit of a difficult question but i was wondering if there was a particular case that has stuck with you yeah i i, I thought because you it, it, I, I knew that was something that, that you were going to ask and you know, I hate to admit it, but I've been doing this job for in excess of 30 years. And the, the, the thing is, that you have to have so much information when you do a case that when you finish a case, you kind of clear it out so that there's room left in your hard drive to store your next case. You know, So, you know, sadly, there probably been some really brilliant cases that, that you know, which I, can't, I literally can't remember. But re a couple just recent ones have stuck with me. Um, during lockdown, just just before lockdown came, the first lockdown, um, I, I was representing a 18-year-old on a, a county lines murder case with there were a number of other people accused with him. And everyone in the court, apart from the judge and the prosecutor, could see that my client was actually innocent of the charge. He hadn't been there when it happened. And even some of the co-defendants were giving evidence saying, look, whatever else was happening, he wasn't there. And unfortunately, we'd just got to the, we'd been there eight weeks, we'd just got to closing speeches. And then Boris Johnson went on TV and said, everything's stopping. So we had to stop the trial, discharge the jury. And kind of over a year later, we had another trial all over again. And fortunately, at the end of a very long trial, the client was actually found not guilty. And it just was one that had he been convicted, and he could easily have been convicted, it was one that yeah, you just about hang on, you know, surely everyone can see. But unfortunately, you don't get that many cases like that. <laughs> They're usually a bit more uh, nuanced. So that, that's one I can think of. Um, Mara? I'd say every case that I do um, leaves something with me. Um, you know, you learn something new, you um, learn a new strategy, you learn something from the client. Um, something arises in the trial that maybe hasn't happened before, even if it has happened before, you have a different take on it. So every case, you know, I learned something new and it's it's hard to sort of pick out one. So I thought I'd talk about my very first case <laughs> um, and I was fresh out of, you know, my first day on my feet. So you, you start on your feet six months into pupillage. And the first brief, criminal brief that I got was um, a lady who had serious mental health problems and had thrown a hot cup of tea at her care worker and was being prosecuted for common assault. And I remember sort of just from a non-lawyer perspective, being horrified that she was being prosecuted when she was so unwell, um, not really knowing what the route was to challenging it, but just sort of taking the prosecutor outside of the court and saying, this is terrible. You know, how can you suggest that she should have a criminal conviction for being mentally unwell? Mm -hmm. um, 
And I didn't know what the route was at that time. I remember calling, going into the toilets and had I had a few people on speed dialing. What do I do? This terrible situation's happened. Um, and that one sticks with me because it was just about understanding that the power that an advocate has to change the course of somebody's life, even if it's only for that small period of time, that because I was able to ask the prosecutor to review the decision to prosecute this unwell woman, um, she avoided a criminal conviction. Whereas if I had, I mean, that she had thrown the cup of tea, there was no doubt about it, but she, it happened because she was extremely mentally unwell. Um, and it happened within the confines of a hospital environment where she was sectioned, you know. And so just that little intervention where you question a decision, you know, and you have the power to question a decision. Somebody who's really disenfranchised, disempowered. Um, I remember that really sticking with me that, you know, if I hadn't been able to make that intervention, she might have come out with a criminal conviction for being essentially mentally unwell. Um, and it's powerful because it shows that actually the role of the advocate, it's not just about what you say in court, it's about all the negotiation that happens outside of court, the representations that you can make um, to support somebody at a really low point in their life. Um, so that one sticks with me. It was the very first case and it, it led to other sort of cases that have a mental health element to them. Um, and those are sometimes the clients that are the most vulnerable. You know, there's lots of vulnerability in the job that we do, but the clients who have mental health issues are often um really hard done by in the criminal justice system. And so that one really stuck with me. Thank you. Yeah, and I suppose sort of the nature of the criminal law is that convictions have really big impacts on people's yeah. lives. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that she had no other convictions. She had other convictions, you know, and so it would have been easy to just say, oh, well, she's got other convictions. It's not like this thing. But it was just the in principle, it was so unfair that she had to face that process, um, you know, just because she had thrown a cup of tea when she was really unwell. Um, and, you know, you have to sort of balance it from the other person's perspective. They're trying to do their job and don't want to have a cup of tea thrown over them just trying to do their job. But balancing the factors and getting the sort of reviewing lawyer at the CPS to think about the impact of a, on a mentally unwell woman having a conviction in, in an area where she's supposed to be supported. Not sure why they were giving really hot cups of tea to people who are mentally unwell. <laughs> you know, um, so just being able to question decisions, you know, it, it reinforced that, you know, you're, you're someone who's in a position of power to question authority and the decisions that they make. And. I remember thinking after I left court that day that I'd actually made a difference, which felt huge. And um, that was the start of the career. <laughs> that sounds like a really interesting and impactful start to, to a criminal. criminal not, not every day was that amazing. One of the things, so just picking up from that, is one of the things you have to get used to is an awful lot of disappointment as well, because for every time that things go well, um, 10 times it won't go well despite your best intentions and your best efforts yeah. and you know that's something you you have to get used to you know so it's probably a bit like being a, a surgeon where some of your patients are going to die during the operation even though you've done everything you can and and you know as you get into more serious work that tends to happen more and more because the consequences are so so sort of great and that's something you've got to be I think you've got to be quite while you've got to be very sensitive at one level, you've also got to be incredibly thick-skinned on another level to do the job. So, you know, just being thick-skinned isn't good enough because then you can't you know, relate to what's going on. But, you know, just being emotional doesn't help at all. Your client needs you there to be strong. So even if you're feeling inside, you know, not that strong, you've got to be strong because if, if the client picks up, if the judge picks up, if the jury pick up, weakness from you then that's going to reflect badly on your client so yeah you've got to be psychologically and emotionally 
quite tough. Obviously, it gets easy. Well, does it get easier? Yeah, and you get kind of battle hardened. Um, you know, and, and you know that that's something. If you go into criminal law, you've got to be prepared. It's not all going to be great human rights victories and everyone patting you on the back. You're going to have a lot of days you're going to come back from court feeling, wow, that was really not good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got to be able to live with that. And one of the great things is that generally we have at the bar, you know, great colleagues, even if they're not in the same chair. I mean, Mary and I, luckily, we're in the same chambers. But, I mean, you know, generally, you know, the criminal, the criminal bar is quite small. And... People are generally quite, you know, out of court, although there's all in court, you're having these battles. Out of court, people tend to be, you know, quite, quite reasonable. Most of them. Most of them. Yeah, and that leads on to, I think, Ellie's next question. I, I was going to answer it before you've even asked it, Ellie. It was about challenges at the bar. What are the challenges that you've faced? And um, yeah, being uh, emotionally resilient is is something that you learn over time i'm one of those people that just feels everything my client feels you know and i have to sort of like rein it in and just think strategically um and not get so caught up in whatever it is they're feeling um because actually it can be really counterproductive so that can be a challenge when you've got a client who's obviously they're going you see them at their worst this is one of the worst points in their life when they're being prosecuted for a crime um whether they you know feel that they're guilty or feel that they're innocent they're in the pits when you when you meet them often um, and so being emotionally resilient yourself and helping them to think through strategy and, and think logically about decision making, even when they're really low, um, can be can be a serious challenge. I, I do lots of cases, say lots of cases, a handful of cases involving child cruelty, and they can be quite tough, you know, on, emotionally. And so just for developing your own resilience over time, that can be challenging when you first start out. But I think even if you as you get senior, there are some cases that will just kind of move you. You have to be emotionally resilient. That's one challenge. Definitely, I can can imagine. And actually, just kind of curious about that, you both sort of touched on the resilience you need with the job. Is that, as I said, a lot of our listeners are either um, actually sixth form students or kind of university law, non-law students. Is that something that you feel that you just learn on the job or pupillage or even kind of experience beforehand? Is there kind of somewhere that you take particularly sort of built it up or? I think what I'd say is that obviously you do learn on the job because when you start on day one, you're not the fully formed. I don't think you're ever fully formed. I mean, I, yeah, I'm, as, as Marion said, you're always learning. Um, and the day you feel that you, you know, you're not learning anything is the day you should pack it in because yeah, there, there are always things to learn. New things come up, you know, but in terms of, of that resilience, I think, I think by the time you come by the time you've done, you know, got, gone into law and then maybe gone through your pupillage, if you're coming the, the barrister route, then you should have an idea of, of kind of how tough it is. You should also have an idea of whether you are the kind of person that has a personality that could, you know, take that. And obviously, if you're the sort of person that, um, you know, is, is just sort of made an emotional wreck from almost anything you watch on TV, then it's probably not the job for you. But equally, you don't want people doing our job that are insensitive because a lot of the job is about picking up cues, signs. You know, you're cross-examining a witness and it's no good just having a list of questions. You're firing at the witness. You've got to actually see what's coming over and you've got to react. So, you know, I might have deal with a witness and think, right, I'm going to ask these questions. And then as it develops, you realise actually, you know, we should move in a different direction. So you need to have 
not only resilience, but you need to be able to you know, think on your feet and shift ground. So it's not a job for people that like to have a very fixed idea of what they're going to do and have it all planned out. It won't work as a criminal advocate. You've got to enjoy the fact that you, you call your client expecting them to say A, and then they're saying B, and you're you're kind of standing there. You've got to make the you've got to like give nothing away, so the jury just think that's what you were expecting. <laughs> so it, yeah, resilience, but it, you you do pick it up. But you know, I think most people would know if they're attracted to the criminal bar, then they already are probably doing some public speaking or did some acting or whatever. Yeah, you know, we're not actors, and there are some pretty failed. I mean, you know, there's probably some failed actors at the bar. But, I mean, we're not actors, but you do need to be able to perform. And in jury trials, the jury are looking to you. And, you know, in a sense, if they like you, they're going to like your client more. If they don't like the barrister or they don't like the way you're presenting the case, that's likely to count against your client. Thank you. That's also really helpful to consider, particularly people kind of considering a route in criminal criminal law and becoming a barrister um and actually there's been quite a lot of commentary about working as a criminal barrister at the moment um so i wanted to ask both your opinions on going forward how do you think that this career will evolve um and will, do you think it will change significantly i think marion's the person to answer that moment because I, I, i'm towards the end of, of my career where marion's more more she's not at the beginning but she's certainly <laughs> at the earlier stages but she's still got quite a long time to so i think that um we're going to see attrition of people unfortunately people leaving the bar um because it's a tough job um it's not always the fam the most family friendly job it doesn't pay well enough at the junior end um and we've seen through the recent strikes you know the voice heard the voices of the juniors who are really struggling um, and I, David and I discussed this the other day that, you know, we had to take a decision about what to do with the um, offer that was made by the government. And lots of us felt very unhappy about the offer, you know, despite whether we voted today is not really the point. The point was lots of us felt that it wasn't enough and that for juniors, it's going to pose a serious difficulty. Um, and I was talking to David about my own situation, that when I joined the bar in 2010, 2011, um, my first salary as a junior barrister as a pupil was £12,000. Um, I used to share half a flat, with half a room in a flat with four other girls and I share a room with another girl in order to be able to afford to live anywhere near commutable distance to, to courts. Um, and, you know, it took a long time for me to be able to sort of earn a reasonable enough income to afford things like childcare um, and to be able to afford a place to live that wasn't involving, you know, another person sharing a room in the end I actually got married and ended up sharing a person with another room <laughs> for a long period. Um, but if you if you're a junior practitioner it's it's very challenging to make a reasonable income and it shouldn't shouldn't be because if you think about the years of study that go into it how much money is put towards that single course the bar professional training course in obscene amounts of money and then to sort of had to pay more for the bar professional training course and thankfully I was funded by a scholarship but it cost more than my first year of salary <laughs> you know um so it's going to cut out huge proportions of society. It's going to mean um, going backwards in terms of diversity. Um, and I think that the future, you know, the increase that we've had of 15% plus other bolt-ons and packages will only go so far. And it's still really tough to make a reasonable income within the first 0 to 5 bracket. 
Um, and that's a real shame. I, I think we had problems of people leaving the profession in lockdown and before that as well, since the first rounds of cuts. And I think we're going to continue to see that, which is a real shame. Um, on the other hand, um, people who are creative and want to stay in the profession will find a way. Um, I left the profession altogether when I had my first child because I couldn't afford the childcare on that low salary. Um, I took another job and then I came back once I'd saved up enough to be able to come back and afford the childcare. And that's sad that I had. To, I felt I had to do that. But um, th there are ways that um, people who are creative and determined can, can make it work. It's just a shame that, you know, we've had to get to that point where it's really difficult to have a young family and work at the, at the criminal bar. Yeah, I mean, sadly, that, that that's true. I mean, you know, the, the, the usual thing, and I'm sure, you know, that as soon as you say you're you're going, you know, someone says, you know, I'm a lawyer or I'm going into law, they're assuming that, you know, you're earning, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds or millions, you know, because you read about um, people going into city firms and starting on 100K salaries and what have you. That's not the crystal bar, okay? Um, and, you know, the, the pity is, it, I mean, I don't think, you know, there's obviously no case for people. People shouldn't necessarily be earning that amount at the beginning. But the reality is, as, as Marion's pointed out, that actually it's, it's a real struggle at the beginning. Um, I was lucky I came through at a time when it wasn't well paid, but it was certainly enough and house prices weren't crazy. So, you know, as a junior barrister a few years in, you could afford to get a mortgage and, and this, that and the other. Now that's really changed. And as Mariam said, it's really affecting diversity because the, the criminal bar has always been really good because people from all kinds of backgrounds could come in. Um, and unfortunately, there's a danger. We're going to return to, the, to a kind of what it was really before I came into it, which was, you know, you needed kind of family money. And that's just wrong. Um, unfortunately, you know, I don't want to go on a rant about this, but successive governments, in particular this one, but previous uh, administrations, um, really don't show much interest in the independent criminal bar. So, you know, I don't think looking forward, we should expect, oh, well, you know, it's, there's going to be kind of glory days ahead. It's tough, but there are, you know, you can combine your practice at the early stages, crime and other areas. And if you do that, you can get through. And then if you really feel that you want to specialise in crime, then maybe five years or so in, then you can drop the other things. The danger at the moment is because the other things are paying at better rates, other areas of law. The danger is that people think, I'd like to carry on doing criminal law, but actually I'm going to give it up because I'm going to make more money. And that's where we're losing out. And I worry that there won't be people with my level of experience, which is needed for the really heavy cases, that there may not be enough Marion's that, that are staying the, you know, staying the course. Uh, and, you know, but unfortunately that's a problem for the future that is a political problem, but I, I'm not sure that any government, and that would include probably a Labour government coming in if that happened in a couple of years' time, are going to suddenly say, goodness me, we must give lots of money to the criminal bar. I hope I'm wrong. Thank you. That's a really interesting um, and helpful perspective for people kind of considering their future careers. And I also there's been all this kind of, um, if you're at university right now, it's slightly different. You hear a lot how they're, the new kind of courses, they also have like a two-year law course as well as the one is supposed to try and encourage more people to get into law. But then I suppose if you sort of do that course and then come up and hit sort of the problems of actually working in it, it's kind of quite counterproductive, I suppose, when you look at it long term. Um, 
But actually, I'm just going to sort of skip a little bit because I think it links really, really well. Um, if I ask you both kind of what advice you would give someone uh, right now considering who was aspiring to become a criminal barrister. Um, and then Mariam, more specifically, uh, what particular advice you would give ethnic minority women for preparation for life at the bar? Okay, so your, the first question I would say is get lots of work experience to make sure it's right for you because it's a big commitment, you know, and um, I, I was a bit like David. I was a bit of an obsessive teen that had done work experience in a magistrate's court and thought I definitely want to be an advocate. Having watched a day of cases, I realised that's what I wanted to do quite early on. Um, but it, it probably would have been good to get a, a range of experiences and really get a, a deeper understanding before sort of launching myself into this committed thing. And I think everybody, I'd advise everybody to get lots of work experience in lots of different fields and make sure it's the right thing for you before you commit to it. Um, on the second part of uh, advice for ethnic minority women, I would say just really work on being confident in your own identity. Um, really work on your own self-confidence so that you don't get shaken by the first person who questions your identity. Um, being confident in your identity make, make, makes other people confident in you um, and you will have your identity. And it's not just about ethnic minority women, it's anybody who has sort of, you know, a particular thing, a minority thing that they identify with. Um, just be confident in that and own it and don't feel like you have to change for anybody in order to fit in. You know, that's Unfortunately, something that I, it took me, a, it was a journey, you know, um, pupillage was a journey where I really questioned my own identity and sort of had to figure out who I was and and be assertive about who I was but instead of trying to just blend into the background. <laughs> Difficult to do when you're wearing one of these. <laughs> and so, um, you just kind of have to really be strong in your own identity and, and be determined. Um, the other part of it is I, I'm quite cheeky about asking for opportunities. Um, I don't wait for the opportunity to present itself. Go and make create your own opportunity. I didn't have the connections in law. I didn't have family members who were lawyers or any of that. So um, if I saw an opportunity, I would I would go and grasp it. And if I didn't see an opportunity, I would go and ask anyway. And um, I'm from up north, you know, and we have a, a saying, if you don't ask, you don't get, you know. <laughs> and so go out and find and create those opportunities. It's, it can be something as simple as, you know, if you've gone to watch a case and you kind of feel a bit removed because you're sitting in the public gallery, via the usher, send a message to the judge and ask for an opportunity to marshal. Um, send a note to the barrister who you've been watching for three days and say, would you mind if I came and did a sort of mini pupillage with you? you know, just go and create those opportunities for yourself if you don't have um, them, them readily available to you and, and be strong in your own identity and proud of your own identity. And that helps other people believe in you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I almost everything that needs to be said. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I didn't have the same sort of challenges coming in because it's still a predominantly it's changing but it's still a predominantly as far as judges are concerned it's a, a white male that, that, that that's that's the setup so I, I didn't have as it were the, the problems of kind of you know convincing people that I'd fitted in which you know other people can have and it's a very real problem you know you hear you hear genuinely you know young, young black barrister goes into court and the, the 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 usher asks them, you know, kind of well, points them to the to the dock and say, you're sitting over there, you know, assuming that they couldn't be the lawyer. Um, these things are changing rapidly. Um, the, the danger with funding is that that goes backwards again. But I think I think the country, I mean, I hope I'm right. But I mean, young people, I've two, you know, grown up kids myself, and I think that attitudes really have changed. And so hopefully, as those sort of judges. <laughs> periods of time expire and 
new people come in and yeah, I don't think that there's going to be that same sort of thing. But the advice to, um, as, as Mariam says, advice to someone aspiring to be a criminal barrister, get as much experience as you can because you, you've got to, don't let, don't let anyone put you off either. I mean, I know we've been through this, both Mary and I have been not negative because we both love this job, okay? I don't, you know, I've got friends, as I say, I've been doing this job well over 30 years. I've got friends that are nearing retirement. They've got much better paid jobs than me, but generally they can't wait to retire, okay, so they can go and do whatever else. I would hate to retire because I actually love doing what I do. And that, that's, you know, three decades on. And, and I know Marion feels the, the same way about a job. So, you know, it's a job you've got to feel passionate about and don't let anyone put you off. If you really think you can do it, Stick it out because you don't want to get to my age, do something else, look back and then regret that you didn't do, you know. So as long as you're going with your eyes open, you should do it. If you feel this is a thing to do and there are different ways in, you can go and work, for example, you know, the Crown Prosecution Service. You can um, you could work for them for a bit, even if you want to defend, you could say, well, I can work there for a bit. And getting that experience is very good. And then at least you get a salary. They do pupillages as well. And then. At the end of that, you could say, well, leaving that to go to the independent bar, you know, assuming we're still there, I hope you will be. But, you know, it, it's don't don't be put off, but equally get as much experience as you can. Speak to barristers, go to court if you can. Be, as Marianne says, be cheeky. You know, if someone emails me, I'm not in favour of the kind of the middle class thing where one of my friends says, well, you know, my kind of, you know, my son would like to have a few days ago. I always feel that's a bit, you know, kind of, you're just using your, and it, luckily I don't get asked that very often. But um, but you know, if if you don't have those contacts, then just get in touch. You know, um, and, and usually we're delighted to have someone with us for a few days. I mean, Mariam and I had that. Well, dare, dare I say we had it with Ellie, <laughs> <laughs> which was a pleasure to have you at court as well. You know, so you know, you you must take up those opportunities when when, when you can. Thank you. That's really helpful and. I suppose also what I find if you kind of, as soon as you start start having work experience, kind of more opportunities, it's easier to kind of then do the second opportunity or the third. And um, if you're used to emailing and contacting people, you get more and more confident doing that. So yeah, that's very helpful advice. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so sort of just to now look more on, I suppose, kind of like specialisms in your um, career and things like that. Um, David, could you tell us a little bit about your specialism in DNA cases or your academic work? Yeah, well, that, 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 like many of these things, the, these things happen without any great planning. Um, I, I can't claim my, my, my two, by both of my sons are quite sort of sciencey and techy, and they laugh when when they hear that I'm considered a DNA expert because uh, I won't tell you what grade I got in biology. I was for GCSE, <laughs> but uh, I certainly didn't do A level biology. Um, but I got, I was in a case, uh, this was 12 or so years ago now. So before I became a, a, a KC, the King's Council, um, and uh, it, it involved, it was some animal rights guy who, alleged, who was alleged to have been trying to actually um, set off explosive devices underneath uh, Oxford colleges. And it was all a bit... Um, hot harebrained because it was sort of targeting things like cricket pavilions and things anyway cut a long story short um one of the devices hadn't gone off the police managed to recover the device and there were tiny amounts of dna on it mm -hmm. and at that stage um the science had got to a stage where they needed quite 
up till then they needed quite big amounts of DNA to try and match it to someone's profile. Um, but there was this new science coming in of looking at this kind of very low level DNA. And that was one of the first cases that, that, that used that. And so when you defend in a case, or indeed if you prosecute in a case, you quite often have to instruct experts because we're not experts. So I had to effectively do a crash course in yeah, how this DNA science worked, what it's what was good about it, and where its weaknesses were, because this was very early stages and it hadn't really been properly validated. Um, there were just one or two people out there. The police were obviously very keen to use it, but it needed to be challenged. And so really through that case, um, you know, I learned a lot about it. And then as a barrister, because you're self-employed, you've always got to think about marketing. Um, you know, because just being good, just being in court is not going to necessarily get you noticed. So it's always a good idea. If you've done something that's interesting, there are lots of legal journals. I think that went to the Law Society Gazette or something. I can't remember. But do an article, send them an article. They love getting articles because, you know, most of the articles are really boring. So if you've got something interesting to write, they'll always publish it. So I think I, I, think I might have written something, written it up. Um, and then, you know, then you kind of get a name for it. But, you know, um, the reality is I'm, I'm not really any expert than anyone else. I've just probably read a few chapters ahead of the others, you know, being honest about it. David's being humble. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really helpful. Um, I actually wasn't aware of the kind of, the, I suppose, like the pairing your career with also writing kind of academic papers and, and helping that to market yourself as well. Yeah, not so much academic papers. I mean, you can do that academic route. You, know, you can write for criminal law review and things. Uh, I, I tend to be a bit more, you know, you can write for the magazine. You know, as barristers, we're self-employed. We're waiting for work from solicitors. Again, we don't get mm -hmm. on trials. Certainly, you don't get them directly coming to you. So clients go to a solicitor and will then brief a barrister for the case. So if you can get your profile up a bit. So if a solicitor gets a case, comes in and says, oh, this has got a really challenging DNA issue in it then if you've done a few articles on it they google dna your name comes up then you might be more likely to get that work mm -hmm. um so i don't mean to sound cynical about it because obviously i wouldn't write about it if i wasn't interested in it and it is interesting uh, and but you know that you've always got to look at how you market so you can do talks as well you know you can um a lot of chambers will do some seminars for solicitors and it's really about you know putting yourself out there so they can see that yeah they might think well I'd like to use that person. Thank you very much. It's very helpful. Okay, and so to finish us off, um, Marion, could you expand on your work on high-profile terrorist cases, um, and also are proceedings notably different when cases are UN, US, or UK based? Yeah, so I've always been fascinated between the interplay with the rights of the individual and the rights of the collective and the need to protect the public and how legislation um, draws the line between, you know, when do we curtail the rights of the, of the individual in order to protect the collective? So that's been a fascination of mine since I started the, my legal studies. And so lots of my undergraduate dissertation, my postgraduate dissertation and just areas of practice that I've kind of been involved with are uh, looking at that interplay. Um, and I was also really interested in 
Yemen because I had done um, three years of work. So I told you that I left the career for a little while and then came back. And uh, the job that I did in that little gap was um, working for Reprieve, which is an NGO that kind of lobbies against the death penalty, both here and abroad. Um, and so a project that I had been working on involved the use of drones and the US policy of using drones to conduct extrajudicial killings in Yemen, Pakistan and Somalia. So I'd been sort of learning really fast about the civil war in Yemen um, and the work that I did at Reprieve led to other work that involved the rights of individuals having their rights curtailed as a result of drone strikes. So the work that um, was quite different to criminal um, practice, practice was UN sanctions work. And I did, I've done a number of those cases with other people, um, other barristers as part of a team and some academics and people who have expertise on Yemen. And one of the cases I was involved in was representing a governor. Um, and because he, he was from a, a northern province in Yemen um, and where the civil war had been broke and broken out. And what often happens with terrorism work, especially in the international level, is that it's highly political and people are listed on the sanctions list as a result of information that's provided to either the UN um, or the US who put them on financial sanctions list. And often that information is completely false um, and is, is, is provided to serve a political agenda. Um, so this particular individual was a member, of, a legitimate member of the, the legitimate Yemeni government, but had been labelled a terrorist by the US and the UN and therefore all the other countries that are signatories to those um, UN sanctions committee had also listed him as a terrorist. And I was working with a team of lawyers to um, lobby the UN ombudsperson um, to provide evidence that he, in fact, was a legitimate member of the Yemeni government and not a terrorist. Um, it's really different to criminal practice, but the same principles apply um, in that you're trying to get fair a fair hearing for your client. Um, and that particular individual, you know, wasn't entitled to know the underlying evidence against it. There's zero disclosure. So you're guessing often on what this information is based on. You get sort of like four bullet points of what the accusations are. Um, but zero disclosure, very different to criminal proceedings where you can list everything that you want the, the, the CPS to provide um, to substantiate their, their the evidence. They, they have no duty to tell you about the case that points away from you or any evidence that would help you. Um, they don't even tell you the detail of the allegations, really. So you're kind of building a case uh, in response to just four bullet points <laughs> of, of why this person can't travel. They can't have accounts. Their assets are frozen. Uh, they can't register their children at schools, uh, at schools. And for our client, he couldn't even live in Yemen because he was at risk of drone strikes as a result of being listed this way. Um, so very different to criminal proceedings. And ultimately, what happened was that we had a hearing uh, during lockdown um, via Zoom, actually, with the UN ombudsperson and four lawyers, two lawyers who travelled to another country to sit with the ombudsperson, but all of us couldn't travel. Um, and the rest of us did it via Zoom from our homes, um, trying to keep the kids out. <laughs> you know? um, uh, and we made representations. Um, we'd also put together a bundle beforehand of evidence that undermined these assertions about the four bullet points that, that, the, that were the accusation. And there was a whole procedure that went into it. I mean, the case lasted from start to finish two years. You know, so it was two years worth of work that went into that. It's not like a quick trial turnaround where the maximum you're looking at is about two months, even on a fraud, you know, two to three months. Um, two years worth of work. Eventually he was delisted, which is a very difficult thing to get uh, as a result. Um, and, you know, it has a huge impact on his on that person's life because he can now register his children at school in the country. He's allowed to travel Um He's allowed to own a bank account, like those basic things. But it's such a political process, very, very different. 
And on the, on the domestic level, I do domestic terrorism cases that involve um, people being charged under te- domestic terrorism legislation for things like disseminating extremist material or encouraging acts of terrorism. And sometimes um, those cases, again, are really interesting because the way that the legislation is is drafted is very broad and it captures all sorts of material, it captures all sorts of conduct. And the sentences are really high. You know, there's been a recent increase in the maximum sentences for those kinds of offences. And so often they they are much more focused on the individual and presenting themselves to a jury, which is standard criminal advocacy. Um, and you get to ask for disclosure, which you don't get to ask for at the international level. So two very different sets of proceedings. But ultimately, uh, it's, again, looking at that balance of the individual rights versus the need to protect the public. Um, it's really interesting work, um, probably one of the most fascinating areas uh, of criminal practice. Yeah, thank you. That that sounds really, really interesting. Um, And thank you both very much for agreeing to be interviewed. No, thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.